This is what God's word says. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying there with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And now verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, as we have turned to your word, It is our desire that we would share in the gladness of those disciples that was felt and experienced when they saw you. And so, Father, we ask that by your Spirit, you would reveal to us the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see him, not just to hear about him, but to see the wonder of his grace and the wonder of his person. For his glory, in his name we ask. Amen. Well, today is Easter Sunday. And again, it is the day in which we remember and we rejoice in the real historic resurrection of this man 
named Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, who by his resurrection, he proved to the world that he really is who he said he was, God himself who came to us in human flesh. And so this day is the most special day for God's church because Jesus' resurrection is the very foundation on which the truthfulness and certainty of the gospel stands. In other words, if there was no resurrection, then there is no gospel. Because any mere man can die and be buried, but no mere man can be raised from the dead just as he said he would on the third day unless he is truly the Son of God. All this to say, the the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of the Bible's veracity and authority. It is because we know with certainty that Jesus really rose from the dead 2,000 years ago that we trust him, that we love him, and that we worship him. Now, for this reason, I, I typically focus the yearly Easter Sunday sermon on kind of this apologetic angle, meaning it's a fancy word for a defense of the faith, giving evidence for its credibility. And so I, I, I usually kind of angle the sermon to, to help present the credibility and the reliability of the resurrection account and pr- to provide all of the undeniable evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead as a real historical fact and event. And as such, because it is so all of the life-changing implications that this bears on us. And look, if you're interested in that, you know, I'd be more than happy to meet, to talk with you about it. I will talk your ear off whether you like it or not. And I will tell you all about the historical veracity of the resurrection and list for you all of the undeniable evidence and what this means for you and for me. But you know, this morning, I, I feel compelled to press the point a little deeper into the actual substance of this historically reliable message. In other words, it's great to talk about the credibility of the Bible's message, but it's all for naught if it never leads us, leads us to behold the wonder of the contents of that message. Because you see, there was something about Jesus' resurrection that caused the hearts of His disciples to swell with unspeakable joy. They were not merely impressed that Jesus had accomplished so impossible a feat. They were not simply wowed by the coolest miracle they had yet seen of Him rising from the dead. But their souls were blooming with happiness. As verse 20 says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, why is that? Well, what was so joyous about seeing the risen Jesus? It's because the Jesus that they saw was the Jesus who had not only risen from the grave with divine power and authority, even all of his glory and majesty, which he all did, But not only that, but that chiefly, he rose from the dead with grace and kindness. As he appeared to them, 
there was this purity of love and heavenly warmth of His presence. And what was so wondrous and joyous about it all was that such love was the most unexpected thing to emanate from the face of Christ standing before them. And yet this love was freely flowing to them from Jesus' heart for no perceivably good reason. But that's the gospel in a nutshell. The good news that God genuinely gives the best of himself to the worst of sinners. Freely. That's grace. Undeserved. Unmerited. Not, not on the basis of anything we have ever done, but actually in spite of everything we have done. Because you see, we have to understand the context of this first Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. Because on this resurrection day, Jesus' disciples were not in a condition and state to expect friendship and goodwill from Jesus. To the contrary, they had done everything to utterly disqualify themselves from any semblance of goodwill or favorable disposition from Jesus. Because remember what happened on Good Friday, just two days before this Resurrection Sunday. You know, that night before Good Friday, when the dawn, Jesus was betrayed and arrested, eventually to be crucified on a cross. But what did Jesus's supposedly loyal and faithful disciples do as he was being handed over to lawless men to be crucified? They abandoned him. They were busy saving their own skin in fear, despite all of the promises that they made to Jesus, that they would never leave him nor forsake him. That's a promise only God can make and keep. But they couldn't keep it. And so, on Thursday night leading to Good Friday, you remember in Matthew chapter 26, I'll, I'll, I'll go in, through Matthew 26 a little bit, so if you want, you could turn there with me in your Bibles, otherwise you can just listen. But on, in Matthew 26, we see that on Thursday night, before, just before Good Friday, it was the Passover meal, the Last Supper. And during the Passover meal, Jesus said to His disciples in verse 21, He said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now you know what happened after that? It says in verse 22, they were very sorrowful to hear that. And they began to say to him, is it I, Lord? Is it me? I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus, I would have just said, I don't know, you tell me, what are you planning? <laughs> but there they went, oh, is, it, is it me, is it me? They were genuinely grieved. When, well, it started off with grief, but... It soon morphed into pride because as Luke tells us in Luke 22, verse 23, what happened is soon they began to question one another, interrogate each other. Is it you? Hey, it's you, huh? And they were arguing which one of them it could be who was going to do this. You know, they started saying, hey, Simon, I think Jesus is talking about you. And Simon goes, no, 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 it's not me. You know, I think it." I think it might be Judas. Oh, no, it's definitely not me, Judas said. You know what? It is 
Matthew Levi, the tax collector. I knew we could never trust those tax collectors. And so they, this is what they were doing, you know? They pointed the gun at each other. It's like watching a bunch of college students play a game of mafia, if you know what I mean. And so that's, that's what happened. And they were convinced that they would never be the ones to do such a thing, to betray Jesus. But what happened later that night in verse 31 as they were going to the Mount of Olives after that supper, it says in verse 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Listen, I know that Judas is the betrayer. But in a very real sense, all of his disciples betrayed him, betrayed his trust. And of course, when Jesus said this in verse 33, Peter answered him, although they will all fall away because of you, I, I will never, I will not fall away. Peter promised. And then verse 34, Jesus said, well, this very night, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But then there you go. Peter, you know, always putting his foot in his mouth. He doubled down, tripled down, and in verse 35, he said to Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now look, Peter was kind of an idiot saying all that, but look what happens next in verse 35. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus, I promise I will never fail you. I will honor you. I'll obey you. I will bring you glory, and I vow to serve you faithfully with the rest of my life and every day of it. They made big promises to God. How many times have we done such a thing and only to end up falling flat on our faces? And so it was with these disciples. In verse 56, later at the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was betrayed by Judas and he was arrested, what did the disciples do? Well, before we get to verse 56, in verse 47, it says that the great crowd came with swords and clubs with the chief priests and the elders. And so, in verse 56, when the disciples saw this mob, it says all the disciples left him and fled. You know, they faithfully walked with Jesus for three years, but that night, it was as though they deliberately walked away from the faith. On that night, consumed by their fleshly impulse, it was as though they were no longer walking with the Lord, but had decided to walk the other way, running away in fear. And if that's not enough, Peter compounded his sins by denying Jesus three times, just as Jesus said he would, even swearing and cursing I do not know this man. I have no relationship with him. I swear to you, he means nothing to me. Go ahead, crucify him, see if I care, is what Peter said in his fear to save his own life. And immediately on, after he did it a third time, the rooster crowed. And Jesus made eye contact with him. And Peter was cut to the heart. And he broke down in guilt and shame and sorrow. You know, at our Good Friday service, just a couple days ago, 
we sang this hymn, one of my favorites, this hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. And one of the stanzas there, it, it, it captures the events of this whole night really well. And it goes, Tell me, as you hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends, through fear, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, but none would intervene to save. Everyone left him. All of Jesus' dearest friends and disciples disowned and abandoned him at the finest hour. And they left him to be hung like a rag doll on the cross and pierced bloody like a slab of meat in a butcher shop. And they would never forget what they did to Jesus. And so look, just two days later, 48 hours later, on Easter Sunday, you got to be a special shameless psychopath with no conscience to expect Jesus, even if he were to rise from the dead and appear to them, to expect for Jesus to show up and say, Hey, Peter, how's it going, man? Oh, it's been a while. It's been a couple days. You know, I was, I was down there in Sheol and Hades. You know, but the weather's a lot nicer up here. Say, you know, why don't we go fishing together? I missed you. That's not what they were expecting. At first Easter Sunday, when the sun came up, the disciples were being crushed with guilt and shame. They were certain that they had sinned beyond the point of no return. In fact, we see Peter's conscience had been so bruised and was hemorrhaging to the point where Jesus had to pay special attention to Peter later in John chapter 21 and to gently restore him from his state of self-condemnation. You see, those 11 disciples had forfeited every right to be accepted by Jesus, to enjoy any semblance of friendship or, or kindness from him. When they woke up that Sunday morning, there was no joy in their heart. There was leftover grief, perhaps Growing grief, growing sorrow, amplifying and intensifying guilt with so many mixed emotions, all of which could nonetheless be characterized as joylessness. But the same morning, the dead body of Jesus of Nazareth in that tomb was raised from the dead by the power of God. And as he rose in glory and triumph, the question is this. Okay, here's the question. As Jesus rose from the dead, with his full memory still intact, how did Jesus feel about his disciples? I mean, even apart from omniscience, you don't need omniscience to know what happened. I mean, he he himself directly and personally experienced their abandonment. And it sure looked like apostasy just a couple days before. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, I wonder, I wonder what was his temperament toward those guilty and disgraceful disciples of his into whom he had invested so much of his time and energy for the past three years. But evidently it turns out that it was all a waste. How did Jesus feel? Well, notice in our passage in John chapter 20. 
that as Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene outside the empty tomb, and she finally recognizes that it was Jesus himself risen from the grave, and she, and she is elated and she clings to him in love, Jesus says in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to... Who? Those apostates? That I want to disassociate myself with? That I have every right to do so? Those former disciples of mine, but now it's my turn to deny them, and rightfully so. Go to my brothers. You know, they say that you can really know the truth of what people think about you, not from what you hear from their lips face to face, but from how they speak of you and refer to you behind your back and how they talk about you to other people. Well, with Jesus, there was no lie or deceit in him, regardless of to whom he was speaking. But even so, look at how true his love was for those disciples. And that even behind their back, quote unquote, his very first words recorded for us after his resurrection and how he speaks of those pathetic, shameful disciples of his is that he refers to them as my Brothers, and if that's not enough, Jesus presses the point. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. You see, Jesus was confirming his love for them and reassuring them that despite all that they had done, God was not ashamed to be their God and Father. And although they had been ashamed of Jesus, Jesus was not ashamed of them. How? How is this possible? Because as Hebrews chapter 2 says, that although Jesus was the King of heaven, the King over all the angels, for just a little while, He humiliated Himself to make Himself lower than the angels by taking on humanity so that by the grace of God, He might suffer and experience death on behalf of all. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, Hebrews 2 says, because He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, truly man, suffering in the place of sinful men, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. That is why He is not ashamed to call us Brothers, because he died to take and bear our shame. You see, when we hear Jesus speak of his disciples in this way, it is right for us to react with shock and even be appalled and say, Oh, how could you call them that? I mean, that's kind of wrong. That's unfair. Don't you remember what they did to you, Jesus? I mean, even if you're so kind to not punish them, how could you positively, affirmatively refer to them so affectionately, so lovingly, so happily? How do those words, my brothers, exit your lips? And doesn't this make us wonder, why did Jesus not rise from the dead in vengeance and in retribution? 
I mean, couldn't Jesus have risen from the grave with justice on the agenda to repay those who hurt him and abandoned him? Ah, but this is the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus rose with divine grace because he had died to satisfy divine justice. Justice had already been fully served. That's what his death was for. It was not a meaningless death. It was a death died as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of the sinners he came to save. You see, the joy of Jesus' resurrection is that it gives us the absolute assurance that God had accepted the payment of sin through the death of His Son. And so, because He had, because Jesus' death was effective and sufficient for sin, therefore God was pleased to raise His Son from the dead as a confirmation of full payment. In other words, if some stranger, somebody else, anybody, any one of us, if some stranger claimed to be the Savior of the world and promised to lay down his life for your sins, if that person dies for you and stays dead, well, you'd have no idea if what that person promised ever came true. I mean, you'd be left wondering and guessing what in the world happened. And of course, you would be foolish to put your hope in somebody who is apparently a mere man, just like you, who dies and stays dead. Nothing impressive about that. He has no power or authority to forgive sins. And now that you know that he's a mere mortal, just like you, that probably means that he has his own sins to worry about. How is he going to save others if he can't save himself? Which is ironically what they were mocking Jesus of at the cross. But look, If Jesus, despite all that he did for all those years, all the miracles, all the wondrous things and all the promises, if after all of that, if he just stayed in the grave, we would be all left guessing, what was that all about? I mean, I know we saw some extraordinary things for three years, but, you know, maybe that was just some paranormal activity. Maybe the Pharisees were right. Maybe Jesus was possessed by the devil and he was doing those miracles by the power of demons because it turns out he's just a man like any of us who dies and decays and he's absolutely powerless against death. He can't be God if there is a greater power that holds authority over him. And so if for whatever reason... If there was something about Jesus' death that was insufficient and dissatisfactory to atone for our sins, God the Father could have left him in the grave. But for our confirmation, for our absolute assurance, God raised Jesus from the dead, not only to show that sin had been paid for, but for Jesus to speak Those words, go to my brothers. I am not ashamed to call them my brothers because I have taken on all their guilt and shame and it is finished. I have atoned for the sins that they can never atone for. 
And so we see that on that first Easter Sunday, later that evening, we find the disciples having locked themselves in a room, hiding from the Jews, actually in the same fear that caused them to desert Jesus in the first place. But there, Jesus passed through that locked door in his divine power, and he showed himself to them. And what were Jesus' first words directly spoken to them? The first thing out of his mouth, face to face. Peace be with you. My brothers, I come to you in peace. Not in anger. Not in resentment. Not in hostility. My love for you has not changed because my love for you these past three years and my love for you for all eternity, even before the foundation of this world, was never on the basis of what you have done or what you haven't done. But it was always eternally on the basis of what I would do and what I have done on your behalf on the cross where I bore every ounce of righteous judgment and condemnation that you ever deserved. This is what Jesus was communicating by those simple words, peace be with you. And so verse 20 says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands. Even though the disciples were actually partly responsible for those nail-pierced hands and feet and side. But when they saw, and when Jesus showed it to them in peace, then, it says, then they were glad when they saw him. They were glad when they understood that Jesus was pierced for them, that Jesus had died for them, and that Jesus rose from the dead to bring them the grace and forgiveness that all of his piercing and suffering and death had been accomplishing all along. This is why that first Easter Sunday was the day of exceeding joy and gladness. Because here we see the simplicity and purity of the gospel, that God is willing and delighted to give the best of Himself to the worst of sinners, and that is why Jesus came. It is the incomprehensible wonder of true, undeserved, Grace, and that is what grace is that God could love sinners who did everything to disqualify themselves from that love. But that is what Jesus' resurrection proves to us, and that is what the risen Jesus Himself shows to us that He died to take our place of condemnation and shame. And because He did, He rose in the abundance of grace and love, unashamed to call us His brothers unashamed to call us his sisters. Some of you this morning have not embraced the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And in light of what we've seen in our passage this morning, I wonder how many of us here refuse to embrace the gospel not because you don't want what it gives, but because you don't believe that it can give to you what it offers to give to you. The free, 
unmerited, undeserved, unearned, genuine love of God. Not an ounce or a milligram on the basis of your deeds, but entirely on the basis of someone else's deeds on your behalf. Namely, Jesus' perfect life of righteousness that you should have lived and Jesus' death and condemnation that you should have suffered. But His resurrection to secure this accomplishment which you could never accomplish. I wonder how many unrepentant sinners there are in this world who do not believe because when they hear the message of the gospel in its purity, this good news seems too good to be true. And so you feel the need to continue working hard and earning some stature of self-perceived righteousness before God, which is ultimately meaningless before one who is holy. And perhaps you feel the need to continually atone for your own sins in whatever creative way you've ordained for yourself. Because you are convinced by the lie that God is not that good. He can't be. And that His good news is too good to be true. And this is just like the first lie and deceit by the devil in the Garden of Eden. You know, God is not that good. You know, in this fallen world, marred with sin, everything is too good to be true. Everything. All of those offers, coupons, those timeshare pitches, you know it. There's always strings attached. But the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is not a message originating from this fallen world. Because it is the promise of God come down from heaven, holy, set apart from this world, from God Himself, come down in the person of Jesus Christ, who descended from His heavenly throne as the fulfillment and realization of God's promise of free grace and mercy for a world hopelessly fallen and lost in sin. All of this is too good. And it is so true. Because God is good, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the nature of the divine. And so there is no sinner on earth whose wickedness can outlast God's exceeding patience and grace. No one is too far gone to return to Him. Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while His near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and return to our God for He will abundantly pardon. If you're here this morning and you have not yet receive the full pardon of sin. Just come to Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and trusting Him to forgive you completely. 
It is safe with Jesus. You can come to Him. You won't always receive grace from people. You won't always get sympathy and kindness. But you always will with Jesus. As our passage this morning proves to us that He is able and willing to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and receive you in the fullness of His love. And church, this is our joy and our confidence that Christ has risen from the grave and He rose to bring us the hope of His unmerited love even to shameful sinners like us because He atoned for our sins as our merciful and faithful High Priest. And so then, let us, by faith, hold fast to the promise that He is not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. Let us learn to stop making big promises to God, but instead grow to trust His never-failing promises to us and the gospel of His grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for this good news of Your Son, Jesus, our Savior, who died for us and who rose to bring to us hope for our hopeless hearts. Thank You for the wonder of Your grace. We don't understand it. But that's the beautiful mystery of it all. That we are left to wonder, why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Lord, give us the faith to cling to this promise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.